0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We are looking at verses uh, 14 through 17 this morning. Last week I thought we might get through... uh, 11 through 17 and all we got through was uh, down through for 14 I guess. So we covered about half of it last week. We'll uh, get the rest of it in here this morning. And then we'll be ready for verses 18 and following. And there's some fun things. We're going to talk about our heavenly position and where it is that we presently are. Don't confuse the location of your physical body sitting in a physical building in uh, Austin, Texas. We are spiritually in the heavenly places in Christ. And uh, the material that we have here in verses 18 through 24 is one of the most comprehensive visions of the church in heaven you're going to find anywhere in the New Testament. And so we'll be blessed to, uh, to work our way through it. All right. Verses uh, 14 and following, Hebrews 12. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." This is what we're going to be covering here today. Before we do, let's bow again humbly before our Lord and ask his blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come humbly before your throne of grace this morning, unworthy, unworthy in ourselves, but made worthy in Jesus Christ. I thank you and praise you that on this day we can open the Scriptures and because you're a God of grace, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see your truth. I pray, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, that you would bless our time, that you would open our eyes, open our ears and soften our hearts to receive the word implanted. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we really introduced the paragraph a week ago, a couple of weeks back now, we saw a return to the uh, athletic metaphor, the fact that the chapter began with an athletic metaphor about running with endurance the race that's set before us, laying aside the sin and every encumbrance, laying that aside and running with endurance. For a brief moment, that metaphor returns in uh, verse 12, when he says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And so these are kind of the, the first aid procedures. These are the, um, the processes by which a runner can get back up on his feet and keep on running should something have tripped him up or should something have caused him to, uh, to be weak, to, to stumble. And so with weak hands and weak knees, they need to be uh, remedied so that the runner can continue the race. There's just no opting out of it. We don't just say, oh, well, I guess I'm done now. No, if we're still living on planet Earth. We still have a race that's set before us. So if we have knee problems, we can't just blame our knee problems and say, well, I'm not really a runner these days. We are all running uh, the race that has been set before us. Until God takes us off this race, we uh, our business is to keep running. And so again, that athletic metaphor is brought back from the first couple of verses back into usage here in verses 12 and 13. And then it gives way to just the plain exhortation of uh, of how we do this. This is how we bind up what's weak. This is how we strengthen feeble knees. And it happens as we pursue peace with all men. It happens as we pursue sanctification. It happens as we maintain our grace perspective. And so last week when we were looking at verse 14, we put these points up here on the screen that the racing metaphor is now abandoned for plain and direct admonishments. Starting with the epistle recipient's attitude towards all mankind. We want to be at peace with everyone as so far as it depends on us. We're not here to wage war with anybody. We're not here to march or crusade or we're not militant in that way. We will be very militant in Second Advent Uh, when we're riding on white horses and uh, occupying our new resurrection bodies. But until then, uh, we are at peace with all men, and we pursue the sanctification. So if they're not yet sanctified, we pursue that. We want to get them saved. Or if they're a believer, but they're walking in darkness, we also pursue their sanctification. We want to get them in fellowship. We want to get them living in the Word of God. And so Verse 14 focuses towards all mankind. Verses 15 through 17 centers on the church, centers on us at Austin Bible Church, our local, uh, church members. What are the, what is the attitude and priority that we should have one to another in this church body? And this is what's described here. So peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That that should be our first uh, prime directive, if you will, to steal a Star Trek prime directive. Our prime directive is to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If we encounter an unbeliever, we give them the gospel. If we encounter a carnal believer, we give them the information necessary whereby they can confess their sins, be restored to fellowship, and begin growing in the Word of God. Now in verses 15 and following we have Uh, the verses that really center on the church, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now that's not going to be applicable to an unbeliever, and that doesn't apply to all mankind on the planet, but it certainly does apply to us, and especially the see to it language. The see to it language means that we're watching out for one another, that we're in charge of one another. The see to it language is authority, It's, it's discipline, it's enforcing standards. And that's what we do among ourselves. That's what we do here within the body. And even within our local application of the body, we don't even, you know, I don't have jurisdiction at Lost Pines Bible Church. I don't go tell Pastor Cliff's people, you know, what to do or how to do it. That's Pastor Cliff's jurisdiction. That's his shepherding domain. And this is my shepherding domain. And so in the see to it uh, that relates to one another, that everybody applies, the, uh, the see to it commands apply to us. So this is what we do concerning us. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And it starts with grace. I'm going to get through last week's slide and get to today. Maintain grace orientation without exception. Maintain grace orientation without exception. And this is vital. A congregation that loses its grace orientation, a congregation that plunges into realms of legalism, not only is it a terrible church to be a part of, who would want that, But beyond the terribleness of it, legalism does not strengthen weakened knees. Lengthening, uh, legalism does not repair or remedy the uh, weakened uh, hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble or make straight paths for your feet. If anything, legalism does just the opposite. Legalism doesn't make a path straight. Legalism puts crooked turns everywhere, puts obstacles everywhere, and puts little hoops that runners have to jump through so that they can impress you with how good they are in their legalism. Grace clears it all away. The grace perspective that we have. And this is a beautiful thing because any believer should be developing a grace orientation. That uh, whether you've been saved uh, just a few weeks or you've been saved for 50 years or somewhere in between, it's not really a matter of what you know. Of course it helps if you know more. But you can still be limited in what you know and be marvelously gracious about it. And, and, and you can be extremely gracious. That's why we grow both in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So well, there's both aspects there that we consider. And growing in grace is, is vital. So we can maintain grace orientation without exception. You might recall in the Galatians series that we taught a couple years ago that uh, in chapter 5 was centered on grace. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. You might join me there here this morning and we can take a look at it again. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. It is critical. I think an individual believer that loses grace becomes a personal spiritual wreck. A local church that loses track of grace, becomes a corporate spiritual wreck. And that's just an order of magnitude even greater. It's, it's terrible for an entire church to be ungracious. That means we start biting and devouring one another. That means uh, instead of building one another up, we're tearing each other down. And it's, uh, it's a frightening thing. Galatians 5 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And this is really what it comes down to, because Satan can't take away our salvation. Nobody here can lose their salvation. If you have eternal life, guess what? That's eternal. You can't lose it. But what happens is Satan can get your eyes off the Lord, get your eyes off of grace, and get you plunged into realms of legalism and works and personal merit based on how great I am, and you're you're just as slaved as the unbeliever on an experiential kind of way. So he says, uh, and in, in the case of his audience in, in the Galatians epistle, uh, there was the uh, temptation to, uh, to submit to circumcision, see, as if that had value for anything in the, in the church age. He said, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And we can rephrase that to say, if you surrender in one issue of legalism, if you decide, well, I'm going to be mostly gracious but in this one thing I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, follow law. No. If you follow one point of the law, you've got to, you're subject to the whole law. And, and you can't be mostly gracious. You're either gracious or you're not in the grace of God. So, and if you do make one compromise, Christ is of no benefit to you. The grace of Jesus Christ doesn't flow through a legalist in his pr- present Christian experience. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You can't just be a little bit legalistic. One step on that path sweeps you away into a terrible downhill slope of uh, more and more legalism. So you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Grace. And remember, that's not losing salvation. That's not about dying and going to hell someday. But that does mean is that presently, this abundant life of grace we should be living is completely lost to you. Because although you're saved, you're not living the grace glories that God has supplied. You have fallen from grace. Verse 5 says, For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. What a thrill as church-age believer priests that we can just live one day at a time in the grace of God waiting for a trumpet to sound. And it could be today. That's the grace of God that keeps us on a day-by-day basis. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. I'm still in Galatians 5 in case I lost you there. It's a long stretch from verse 1 to verse 15. Galatians 5.7 says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See, just like in Hebrews, the running metaphor speaks to our personal experience. It speaks to the experiential nature of the Christian walk. And maybe you are doing well. Keep it up. And if you get tripped up, man, you got to shove that off to the side. Get back up and keep running. Because there's a persuasion that's at work. And, and it happens It happens. Satan does it. The world does it. Our own flesh does it. We get these little whispers. And the little whispers are always away from the Word of God and towards self. When he says this persuasion did not come from him who calls you, it is a persuasion, but it's not God's persuasion. Anyway. um, we don't have to read all of these verses, but just notice. Verse 13 says, You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The grace of God is not license to sin, but the grace of God is freedom to serve. And in grace, a grace-oriented assembly will be the most serving assembly you've ever seen in your life. And, and it's, it's upside down from how most legalists take it. I, uh, you know, I've encountered legalist pastors over the years, and uh, not from our circles or our fellowship, but uh, in, very, in, in uh, Ukraine, for example, the Baptist churches there are highly legalistic. Absolutely. And they'll tell you this. And they also teach you can lose your salvation, which is another terrible thing. But they love both aspects. They think that Arminian theology can scare their people to serving more. And that legalism can guilt trip their people to serving more. And so you get scared people on a guilt trip and they can really motivate service for the church. And it's all wood, hay, stubble. God hates it. and It's going to be burned at the judgment seat of Christ. Because if it's not grace, if it's not faith, if it's not the Holy Spirit leading it, it's not gold, silver, and precious stones that, uh, that honor the Lord. So you were called to freedom. It's not freedom to sin, it's freedom to serve. And grace makes this happen through love, serve one another. And then the warning in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. I mean, if everybody's biting and chewing, that includes you. I mean, eventually we all get eaten. And, and what good does that do to anybody? Legalism is just a terrible, terrible thing. There's another uh, Pauline passage in Second Corinthians chapter 6. That's terrific in the realms of grace. Versus uh, legalism. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, in case you need grace reminders here this morning. It says, Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, you got saved by grace, now you can walk in grace, you can start serving in grace. The positional truth reality becomes the basis for our experiential truth reality. Otherwise, yeah, we're saved, but it seems kind of empty if we're not serving right now. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Again, it's the daily emphasis of the here and now. The way Hebrews puts it is day after day as long as it's called today. Today. The way Paul puts it is, now is the acceptable time. He quotes a verse from Isaiah and he says, today's the day. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Legalism is probably the biggest cause for offense that's out there. It'll discredit the ministry faster than anything. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times uh, you know, people think it's uh, something more glamorous than that or it's something more spectacular, the, the, the kind of carnality that makes the front page of the newspaper or the, the, the television broadcasters and there's nothing quite so juicy as a, as a sex scandal or some kind of a thing the pastor was exposed for or whatnot. And yeah, that makes all the headlines it makes all the, the news stories. And, and then yes it does discredit the ministry. I'm not saying it doesn't. But legalism discredits the ministry faster than anything and it doesn't even make the the front pages. (laughs) It doesn't make the headlines. It doesn't make the news. Oh, here's a legalistic pastor. Here's a legalistic church. That doesn't sell quite the way that the other spectacular stuff sells, I guess, to that uh, carnal mindedness. Anyway, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, And it comes down to how do we serve in grace. And when you read through the rest of this, down through verse 10, when you read through the rest of this, it's like a schizophrenic passage that's talking about things that are true the way the world looks at it, but things that are true as we know it in grace. Walking in grace and serving the Lord. And so we we can have glory and dishonor at the same time. We can have evil report and good report. We can be regarded as deceivers yet true. We can be unknown yet well known. I'll be be very, very happy to never make the Austin list of who's who in, uh, you know, the most, you know, influential movers and shakers in in the the city of Austin. Because my name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I want to know, you know, when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's so much more. But as you you look through there, it's grace. And so Hebrews 12.15, as it says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Uh, That's got to be the thing. And so I think, you know, a grace ministry, if we're not preaching grace in every message, what are we doing? There's got to be grace in all that we say and do. But then he moves on from grace to bitterness. Also in verse 15. And the author of Hebrews in 12.15 says, to cut it off, to cut it off at the root don't let it grow. If you let it grow in, in where it's past the root stage, now it's a, a stem, now it's a shoot, now it's a plant, now it's a tree. The longer you let it go, that bitterness gets huge. Next thing you know, you're looking at a sequoia from Oregon somewhere, right? I mean, it's just a monster redwood that's large. And you should have rooted it out at the very beginning. Bitterness is a terrible slave master. Again, it's Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This is uh, the, the nature of bitterness that uh, spreads like a, you know, a Chinese virus somewhere. Of the, the contagious nature of the, of the bitterness just spreads. And uh, there's nothing like a bitter person to make two bitter people, to make five bitter people, make ten bitter people. That's why it's spoken of in marriage passages too about don't be embittered against, you know, husbands are commanded to love your wives and don't be embittered against them. As a bittered, embittered uh, marriage spouse leads to two embittered marriage spouses. Spice. No, spouses. All right. (laughs) Bitterness. Springing up. Notice, springing up. It's, it's using this plant metaphor. It starts with a root, but then it springs up. If you don't kill it, it springs up. And then, uh, and then it spreads, causing trouble. And by it many be defiled. So you can see the cycles there. You can see how it progresses. You can see how it interconnects. Similar to what we have in Ephesians. Paul wrote about this as well. Incidentally, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, but clearly the Pauline influence is everywhere throughout the book. The author of Hebrews was a companion of Paul. I think it was Luke, a companion of Paul, uh, a fellow co-author with the, the pastoral epistles with Paul, or at least the scribe who uh, who wrote those pastoral epistles. Ephesians four verses thirty-one and thirty-two. this comes also in the midst of a longer development related to how a local church orients to one another starting uh, we have personal holiness in 17 through 24 whereby we confess our sins we're restored to fellowship we're walking in the light and uh, in the things there being renewed in the spirit of our mind putting on the new self So we have individual instructions for personal application in 17 through 24. Then we get the corporate application for the one another uses. Starting in verse 25 when it says, Therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. And so this is the command that applies to all of us, towards all of us. We are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Church members will make you mad. But don't get carnal. all right? And pray over it. This day, don't let it fester. Don't, don't wait till tomorrow. Pray for it now before the sun goes down. So that you can surrender to the Lord and get a good night's sleep. Because you let it go. Wake up in the morning with a fresh start. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Again, that's corporate. The church at large is aware that the devil is waiting to creep in here and, and cause trouble. He who steals must steal no longer. Rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. I think that's neat is that we're not preaching to unbelievers saying, hey, you've got to quit stealing if you want to get saved. But you give the gospel to the unbeliever and then they get saved and then you start teaching them the Bible. And in teaching a brand new believer the Bible certain things get highlighted saying, you know, uh that whole thief career you've got going on there, you need, to, you need to probably find a different line of work. Okay? Not in order to get saved, but because now you are saved. And this is a new way of life that God has presented before you. So part of what the old man was, let, let all that stuff go. So uh, labor, performing in your own hands what is good, so you have something to share with the one who has need. See, if you're a thief, you're just stealing stuff for yourself. But if you're a believer walking in grace and working with the right attitude and serving God, you are producing an abundance because you know it's not all about yourself. It's about the body of Christ. And you want to have an abundance to be able to share with brothers and sisters that have need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. There's so another grace application like we were talking about a few minutes ago. And how do we communicate one with another? How do we, how do we relate? How do we speak to one another? It all needs to be in, in love and grace. Nothing unwholesome. We're not here to tear one another down. We're here to build one another up. The need of the moment. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And that was a bit of a chain, wasn't it? Why didn't it just stop with bitterness? Because as we saw, bitterness starts with a root and then it springs up and then it spreads and then it does harm and then many are defiled and we see that there's these interlocking uh, sins, these interlocking uh, uh, consequences of what happens if you don't dig out bitterness at the root. You end up with bitterness and then you end up with wrath. And then you end up with anger. And you could have rooted it out at the very beginning by digging up the, the root of bitterness. Before you know it, you're on to clamor. Look out for the clamor. And, and, but hey, you, you know what I noticed though? We just had a, our annual church business meeting a couple weeks ago and there was no clamor. Thank God. <laughs> all, to all the glory, no clamor. Or slander, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now these are marvelous verses. This is how Ephesians four comes to an end, and it's it's, it's a sweet text for our application and so forth. But being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other—good luck doing any of that with a root of bitterness, poisoning your very soul. It's just not going to happen. So you've got to dig that that out by the root and be done with it. I did not include the um, it's a Colossians passage about husbands and wives. It's uh, the parallel to Ephesians 5. Let me find it here real quickly. It says uh, Colossians 3 and verse 19. Colossians. So add that to the slide. It's not on there, but you can write it in yourself. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting, proper, appropriate in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. It's a unique detail to Colossians that he doesn't repeat in, uh, in Ephesians, interestingly enough. So bitterness in Colossians 4.19. back to Hebrews 12. I would think as Austin Bible Church maintains a grace orientation, as Austin Bible Church roots out bitterness that just by those two things alone Austin Bible Church is going a long ways towards strengthening feeble knees and uh, lifting up the weakened hands and that uh, those two elements just by themselves uh, are going to help promote our, our racing performance as, uh, as runners with endurance. But it doesn't stop there. It says see to it. Now the same see to it in verse 15. Go ahead and repeat those in uh, verse 16. See to it that there be no fornicators or uh, godless like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Again the language is see to it. The language is we do this amongst ourselves, that we apply this. We, con- we don't control the unbeliever. We don't, you know, the world does what it does. And don't be shocked when they do it, because that's what they do. Dogs bark, cats meow, that's what they do. Apple trees produce apples, have you noticed that? Banana trees produce bananas, you've noticed that? They never just decide out of nowhere to change what they're doing. There's no apple tree just pops a banana up there for no reason, okay? God designed it to be this way. We replicate after our kind. And the unbeliever, the fallen unbeliever in Adam, does what he does because he is a fallen unbeliever in Adam. And trying to uh, reform that, trying to create a some kind of a, turn over a new leaf and create a morally reformed reprobate just gives you a, a morally reformed reprobate at the end of the effort, whatever success level you think you've reached. No, the, the answer is salvation. Get saved, cast off the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then <laughs> with a body of believers that makes up a local church, you've got to remove the fornicators. You've got to remove the godless. How does a godless man end up in a church? Well, yeah. The same way the unbeliever ends up in a church. We're sinners. Got reasons for being where we are. Different reasons for different people at different times. But the immoral or godless person is the fornicator or the godless. And uh, where you become your own god. You, You feed your belly. You feed your appetite. And there's no greater power outside yourself because you're the greatest power you can imagine. You're the one serving yourself all the time and that's, uh, that's trouble in a church. That has to be removed. And uh, you don't want to. It's kind of a last resort sort of thing. You, first of all, you want to you correct it. You want to rebuke it. You want to win your brother. You want to show him his fault. You want to show him the scriptures to say, look, man, Jesus died on the cross, so you don't have to have this empty life of the passing pleasures of sin. We have the eternal glories of righteousness. Anyway, if he doesn't listen to you, take along two or three or more. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, the man's got to go. That's the whole lesson of 1 Corinthians. They didn't send the man of incest out of there. He was the biggest fornicator imaginable. And they were keeping him around. The immoral and or godless must be rejected they can't stay. They must be rejected because, actually, they already are rejected. God has rejected them. Esau was rejected, and we'll talk about him next. But the immoral and/or the godless. Now, this is uh, this is a curious thing, because um, in particular, there is a, a recognition, of course, sin. We all sin, every believer sins, and we have the privilege to confess our sins, to be restored to fellowship. Uh, the, what's curious, though, is what happens when a sin becomes so controlling that it becomes a lifestyle, that it becomes descriptive of the person. And the nature of fornication is such that it is devastating to uh, families, to church families, the example that's said is horrendous. Other people become emboldened to, uh, to do those things because, well, you know, so-and-so is doing it and the pastor lets him get away with it and, uh, and other things there. So we're not, uh, we're not singling out certain sins and saying that they're worse than others, but we are identifying that this passage tells us that the fornicators and the godless can't be here. See to it that no, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. So the immoral and or the godless must be rejected. And uh, that's how you see to it. So you either, re- you either get them to repent by rebuking them and showing them the scriptures. and get That's the best plan. <laughs> get them in, the, in fellowship. Get them walking in the light. Get them saying, you know what? This is wrong. This has to stop. And then they can be restored to fellowship. That's why Second Corinthians was written. <laughs> All right, because when the repentance happens, the man of incest comes back to the church. The former man of incest, the man of previous repented incest with his uh, stepmother, gets to come back to the church. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians five verses nine through thirteen. It's almost like the author of Hebrews is just giving us a Pauline synthesis for uh, local church exhortation. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter this is 1 Corinthians I, I wrote to you in my letter you know, the one before 1 Corinthians. One that's not in our Bible, but that's okay. We're relaxed about it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with fornicators. It's, it's pornos. Where we get pornography. pornoy in the plural. And it's, uh, I don't know, in the 1970s, the, the Lachman Foundation decided when they were publishing the New American Standard Bible that they were going to use immoral person instead of fornicator. Because I guess fornicator is too Elizabethan. <laughs> 16th century Elizabethan English, maybe Old King James and And maybe they were, I don't know what they were thinking in the 1970s, but uh, it seems to me they should have kept fornicator in the text. I think there was a lot of that happening in the 60s and 70s. But anyway, the problem is, is today people read immoral people and they think, it's so watered down, they think, well, you know, it's immoral to to cheat on your taxes or it's immoral to, um, you know, take a penny and never leave a penny. I mean, they got ideas of what's moral and immoral that are so relative and fluff that it fails to realize the, the term is pornos, it's a fornicator. Let's just call it fornicators. So I wrote to you my letter not to associate with fornicators. I didn't at all mean with the fornicators of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Good luck leaving planet Earth. Okay? We're not talking about the world and what they're doing. We're talking about your church and what you are tolerating amongst yourselves. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Brother. And whether he's saved or not is not the issue. Here the issue is he names the name of Christ. He says he's your brother. He's attending your church. But he's a fornicator or he's godless. So if he is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, so we're not just picking out one particular sin and picking on that. It's, it's anything really, that uh, destroys the testimony and destroys the cohesiveness within the local church. Not even to eat with such a one. That means we're excluding them from the church life. We're also excluding them from social life. The idea is, is through such um, separation that uh, they will come to realize what they've lost. Sometimes you don't know what you lost until you lost it. And then you realize, man, that's that's terrible. I need that back. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? I wish more churches would read this verse. Instead of trying to whitewash the devil's world and get on some kind of a morality crusade and, and uh, you know, keep dogs from barking. Keep fornicators from fornicating. That's what they do. Do you not... Uh, Judge those who are within the church. Those who are outside, God judges. That's His business. Our business is us. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So this is the issue here. And so the flagrant immorality. And these are the things because, remember, our personal life has to be a reflection of the Word of God. We have to be living according to the convictions. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. The pastor that preaches one thing and lives another, that's a hypocrite get rid of that man get a real shepherd likewise uh, the deacons the Sunday school teachers the piano player whoever if anybody in the church living in defiance of scripture is a problem say this is what it's about it's the open defiance of the scriptures we're not talking about a you know a personal sin that's committed on occasion we're talking about an open defiance of the scripture that is a consistent lifestyle Now, in the case of Esau, it's interesting. Characteristic of such godlessness is their disdain for the sound doctrine of our birthright. For us, it's our birthright in Christ. For Esau was his birthright in uh, Isaac. Birthright in Abraham. The fact that he is seed of Abraham and he is the firstborn and he couldn't care less. He said Jacob could have it. All he wanted was that that stew that smelled real good. Characteristic of such godlessness is disdain for the sound doctrine of our birthright in Christ. And I think this is interesting because have we not been studying the birthright blessings of discipline? The Father deals with us as with sons. Our birthright is to be disciplined by God the Father because He loves us. Well, well, the believer who disdains that kind of discipline is disdaining his birthright, and is just like Esau, who sold his birthright for the the the, the pottage, the stew. Got some nice verses here from Timothy, first and second Timothy, that really reflect upon our, our sonship, that reflect upon our birthright in Christ, and the blessings of sound doctrine. First Timothy four six and seven, First Timothy 6, 20, 2 Timothy two sixteen, addressing this issue. And like I say, I believe Luke was the author of Hebrews. I believe Luke was also the scribe, the amanuensis, who put quill to parchment when Paul was dictating First and Second Timothy and Titus. So this should not surprise us either. 1 Timothy 4, six says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables. And this is the vocabulary for godlessness that we're worried about in Hebrews 12. It's the same Greek word when it says, See to it that there's no fornicator or godless person among you. The godless The worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. You see the contrast? There's the godless fables, worldly fables, but we have to discipline ourselves for godliness, which means we have to be nourished on sound doctrine. It's the sound doctrine that will build us up in the faith. The best blessing we can give to our children before they leave home is to give them that foundation of sound doctrine. That's what will nourish them. That's what will sustain them. Not the fun and games and the entertainment and all the festivities of a youth group and other bowling activities or whatnot. All right. Godliness. 1 Timothy 6.20 O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it. Treasure it. Defend it. Because there will be a crowd of people wanting you to dump it. You know. We were discussing when will the day come that Austin Bible Church, when, when Pastor Bob is going to ditch the suit and tie. When will the day come I don't know the day will ever come. But I can always hope. All right. When will the day come that Pastor Bob abandoned sound doctrine? That day will never come. Is it coincidence that suit and tie tends to go first and then sound doctrine after that? I don't know. All right. Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter. So here's, again, this is the godlessness. When it's called worldly, it's not cosmic, it's uh, godless. Empty chatter. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. They think it's knowledge. God says it's a lie. Some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. That's how First Timothy comes to a close. Characteristic of such godlessness. You know, the biggest issue about godlessness, and this is the tandem to fornication, okay? I mean, so we get that. We get the idea about you know the the flagrant fornication and but godlessness, the disdain for the word of God, for the sound doctrine. In other words, other priorities besides the Bible doctrine that we have taught two hundred and thirty times every calendar year. There's a feast available. And if that's not enough for you, there's 5,000 hours on the website. You can, you can feast all day every day if you want on the, the archived series that are there. But some have professed and gone astray from the faith. 2 Timothy 2.16 Verse 14 says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to even more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. You know, if you notice gangrene on your foot, or your leg, wherever, if you notice gangrene on anything, don't ignore it. Don't just think, eh, it's all right, it's not that bad, or it'll go away, or it'll get better. I don't need to see a doctor. Gangrene isn't like that, okay? It's going to spread, and so when we have fornicators or godless people, it's like gangrene. To save the body, it has to be chopped off. And it seems brutal, well, because it is. But you get out the cleaver and, and you, uh, you chop it off. See? Esau is the interesting example on this because he, he's a son of Abraham, he's a son of Isaac. He's not, uh, he's not of Ishmael, he's a son of Isaac, he's a twin brother to Jacob. He's just not a Jew. Because the Jews are Jacob and his 12 sons. And even though he's a twin to the Jew, the first Jew, he's not a Jew. And yet Esau could have been blessed as a son of Abraham, could have, but he rejected it. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place. So there's really two episodes that happen there between the brothers. The birthright and the blessing. And a lot of times we we blend those, we confuse them. They're two separate issues, two separate chapters. One followed the other. The second one was worse because of the first one. Worse in Esau's mind. And it's curious, what was, what was the motivation for the second one when he had such disdain for the first one? If he sold his birthright for the single meal and couldn't care less, why did it bother him about the blessing? Why did he even care if, if Isaac blessed Jacob instead of him? Does that mean he had a repentance? He had a change of heart? No. And this text tells us he didn't. And so some of these things also become interesting related to repentance, related to remorse, related to what we talk about in terms of our own applications. Understand, remorse is not repentance. You can feel bad about something. You can feel real bad about something and not repent. Fundamentally, you still have the same attitude you had, the same thinking you had. Your thinking hasn't changed, even though you feel bad about it. And uh, part of what we do as parents in trying to discipline our children is we're trying to change behavior. We're trying to change thinking. And sometimes we think that if they show remorse, if they feel bad, that we've accomplished the mission. Not so. Because you can feel bad and still not change your thinking. And if you haven't changed your thinking, then you're not changing your activity. And so if you're disciplining a child with behavior that's not appropriate, remorse is insufficient. Chances are remorse is uh, <laughs> um, they're sad about getting caught. More so than, uh, than truly convicted, personally convicted about the error of their ways or their, their sin before God or their uh, violation of family uh, expectations and so forth. Anyway, the example is Esau, and he's given here, even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And and he is. He's, he's pleading with his father. When, and this was the episode where Jacob snuck in there in disguise, and the father was mostly blind anyway. And he was wearing the the, the clothes and he had the, the sheepskin on his hands, and and so he got close enough to feel and to smell. And, and the, the deception was very comprehensive. His mother helped him with this and then they really deceived Isaac really well. And uh, Jacob was able to get out of the tent uh, just in time before Esau came in and the jig was up. Because Isaac realized man, I just gave my blessing to, to Jacob, the, the, the supplanter. And uh, But what does Esau do then? He's begging. He wants, is that your only blessing? Do you not have a second blessing? Can you bless me as well? Why did he even want that? And the author of Hebrews here, or really we can say the Holy Spirit is cluing us in to the thought process. He desired to inherit the blessing, but notice he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. No place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. There was no repentance. There was regret, but no repentance. And we can't blend those issues or we lead to confusion. Remorse is not repentance. Judas Iscariot had remorse. Matthew 27, when he crucified, when he betrayed Jesus, he led the soldiers to the garden and he kissed Jesus and they arrested him. He'd already collected his fee. It was a win-win for him. Uh, he was. What was he thinking was going to happen? Huh. Didn't expect that Jesus was just going to very humbly submit to it and go get arrested and go die on a cross. He figured that he, and remember he was partners with, uh, with uh, Simon the Zealot. And so those two, when they went out two by two, what was their dinner conversation like? Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. I suspect that with the betrayal and the arrest that finally Jesus would cast off the humility act and conquer the world. That he would reign as Messiah. And that Judas would claim credit for saying, hey, I made this happen. <laughs> right? He pushed the right buttons and he forced the, the confrontation. But instead Jesus humbled himself. He accepted the arrest. He accepted the torture, the beatings. And he went and died on the cross. And so Judas was remorseful. Not repentant, remorseful. And we read about that here in Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. The Greek verb is metamelamai. It's not metanoeo. That's the verb for repentance. This is the verb for remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Try to give a refund to your blood money, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. No returns, no exchanges, right? So he threw the pieces of silver to the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. And of course the chief priests They don't know what to do. It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury because it's the price of blood. It's blood money. We can't keep this. Never mind that it's their blood money. They paid it. But now they're going to be all religious about it and they can't take it back. So they buy the potter's field and say, hey, there's a good idea. Let's fulfill scripture while we're at it. As the prophet Jeremiah spoke about the potter's field. So remorse is not repentance. And emotionalism is not sufficient. Emotionalism is not sufficient. This is probably the defining... (laughs) Besetting issue in our culture. They see the tears and they go, oh. Even in John 11, they saw the tears. Jesus wept and they said, oh, how he loved him. They didn't even have the capacity to understand why Jesus was really weeping. Their lack of faith. And the unfortunate, undeserved suffering that Lazarus had to leave glory and come back to this earth emotionalism is not sufficient. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. You can seek for it with tears. You can cry crocodile tears as long as the day is long. You need the change of attitude. You need the repentance. The change of thinking is what's called for. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. And it's interesting too because he's talking about 1 Corinthians, and he's talking about the removal of the man of incest and then about bringing him back when he was repentant. He says in verse 8, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That's the issue. Don't just go for the emotionalism and make people feel bad. Teach the doctrine that sparks the change of thinking. And if sorrow is a part of it, well, okay. And discipline is sorrowful. But learn the lesson. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So there's eternal benefit by true repentance. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Isn't that beautiful? See, the problem is people have regrets without repentance. But he designs our discipline so that we have repentance without regret. We don't kill ourselves with guilt for years afterwards. We just thank God for being a God of grace. Repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. that's the saddest part of all. People that think they're so serving God because they're so emotional about it. And it's not in accordance with knowledge. It's a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. So remorse is not repentance, and emotionalism is not sufficient. All right, well this takes us then to the end of this paragraph, and we're ready for next week. In verse 18 it says, let me just tease you with this and then we'll close with the final hymn. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. He's using the story of Mount Sinai after the Exodus. He's using the reality of where Israel went when they got redeemed. They were brought through the Red Sea. They were brought out of their bondage. They were taken to a frightening, terrifying holy mountain of God called Mount Sinai. And it gets described here in in several verses that detail how terrifying this was. That's not us. That was them. When we got saved, we were brought to an entirely different mountain. We now are heavenly citizens who stand upon the heavenly mountain and this is going to be described for us from verse 18 down to verse 24. And so we've got a we've got a marvelous glimpse of heaven here, which is a present reality. It's not what we hope to get to when we die. It's where we are now in our priestly function. We are there now. We have come to this mountain. And we need to act like it. Okay. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this teaching. And I thank you, Father, that the Word of God goes forth and it's powerful, powerful for the destruction of fortresses, powerful to change our thinking. And I pray that we are humble before it, that we see it for what it says, and we don't try to substitute our own opinions. It says what it says, and we submit to it, Father. We thank you for it. And I pray that we never plunge into the, the phoniness of uh, hyper-emotionalism or some other thing that we recognize the reality is what it is and you deal with us as with sons and we thank you for that. Father, we do thank you and we praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.